Welcome to Value Investor TV Podcast. This is a podcast that helps you grow wealth and become financially independent. That was a great motto right there. <laughs> uh, this is episode 12, uh, Stock Market Players. My name is Beko and my partner, Hari Radhakrishnan. Hello. I think I pronounced your last name correctly. You did. <laughs> All right. So in this episode, we're going to talk about the stock market players. Okay, in the two in the, the past three episodes, we talked about company going public, what is required for a company to go public. You know, we talked about investment banks, and then the last episode, as investors, how do we access that market? We access it through brokerage account, brokerage firms. And we talked about that in the previous episode. Now, in this episode, we want to kind of put everything together and explain to you how the stock market works when you have all these different players working in it and who are the key, key key players and how they influence the market and what their interest is, mm -hmm. their interest alignments. So I just want to quickly outline uh, the players and then we can dive deep into each one of them quickly. Yep. So the first one is obvious. It's the companies themselves, right? The the Walmart or whoever, just, you know, go to any, any public Trading company, th that's what we're talking about here. Yeah. So these are companies uh, listed, the publicly traded company. The second player are the investors. So it could be institutional investors. It could be retail investors. We will talk about the differences later. And then the third is investment banks. Like we said, these are the underwriters, but they sometimes have you know their own uh, prop trading, trading desks as well. They play in this marketplace. And like we talked about in the previous episode, previous episode, the broker, the brokerage accounts, the brokerage firms, yep, they play in this. And lastly, the exchange, the New York Stock Exchange or Nasdaq, or you know other Toronto Stock Exchange, New York London Stock Exchange, yep, all the exchanges. So those are the five players we we outlined to tell you guys more about. Um, so let's dive into the first one, to the company. Yeah, so you remember when we talked about Hot Dog Inc., right? Um, you know, and we had talked about the debt and equity, um, which was several episodes ago. But, you know, in essence, they are trading a piece of the company, um, you know, for in exchange for cash, you know, raising cash. So that those shares are issued by somebody either paid money for them or the, they, they were given shares, you know, because they were such early you know, you know, because they they invested their own time in making the company what it is, and that was a you know that was a financial you know remuneration for their efforts uh, in some other way, um, you know. So <clears throat> those people own shares, and ideally, you would want to see you want want to invest as we talked about earlier. The insiders are aligned with the people who are investing. And so if everyone's aligned, then they're going to do what's best for the share price. And, you know, because they they also benefit when the share price goes up. So these are the people who work for the company. They're on the board. You know, they're affiliated with the company in some, you know, you know, in some way. Um, and, you know, you know, they typically don't do a lot when it comes to the actual volume of transactions because they they may own a percentage of the shares. Sometimes it may be small and sometimes it may be large. Um, but they're not typically, you know, companies don't typically buy and sell their shares on a daily basis. Uh, I, I certainly hope they don't do that. <laughs> that would be crazy. Uh, but yeah, the when a company does that, you know, 
they may also issue shares to sure. raise money, you know, and we call that a secondary offering, which we kind of talked about after, you know, after the IPO. So, you know, they may have blocks of shares that they, they sell later, uh, you know, through, and that may go through an investment bank or something like that. Yeah. So that's company. Let's move on to the next one. Investors. It's you and I and many others out there as well as institutional capital. Yeah. So let's, let's jump into, let's do, um, let's do institutional first. Yeah. So I, I want to make it very clear, you know, all of these different groups, you know, that are market players, they are still owners of the business, right? And they, they own, you know, the business because they own shares, right? So whatever label is applied to them, they don't have any, they're not any different from the you and I who also own shares, right? So when we talk about institutional investors, this is a, you know, an enormous, you know, industry that is made up of people in mutual funds. So these are people who invest on your behalf. So you buy shares in the mutual fund and they use that cash to buy shares in individual companies. Sometimes that is based on a philosophy, like we only invest in value stocks. Sometimes we only buy growth stocks. Um, industry specific, industry specific mutual funds. Um, sometimes it's country specific funds. Um, and you know, they, they ha run an enormous gambit of this. So the mutual fund industry was very popular 20 or 30 years ago. And that has kind of shifted away to this, you know, robo advisor slash, uh, ETFs, ETFs. ETFs. you know, there's a lot of differences and they all essentially charge you some fees for managing your fund. That fee may be associated with how much money, you know, if you give them $100, they take $2 of that. Regardless of how they perform, they, they take that money. Uh, some of them are called, you know, the, you know, they call them hedge funds and, you know, they buy stocks in uh, certain uh, uh, companies and they take a commission of, you know, of assets under management of one or two percent, but they also take a percentage of the profits they earn you or don't earn you in many cases uh, uh, for for that. So inside this umbrella term of institutional investors, there's also a, a, a ton of other things, endowment funds, pension funds. So, you know, for example, Rice uh, University has a, you know, six billion dollar, almost six billion dollar uh, endowment fund. And, uh, you know, a third of that is publicly traded companies, um, you know, and so and they may, you know, these publicly traded companies, uh, I'm sorry, the uh, institutional investors may invest in other institutional investors. You know, they call these fund of funds and, you know, all of this stuff. Some of this is, you know, when you start breaking it down and looking at it, it is pretty insane where people put their money and how who owns what um you know, to, to start looking at it, um, you know, here in Houston, you know, Rice University actually owns a, a huge percentage of the real estate around the university and they make a lot of money off of renting that out. You know, so all of that falls under, um, you know, these different categories, um, you know, and so we talked about that. There's also private equity firms, which, you know, they may borrow money um, or they may, you know, they run these funds with money that they already have and they buy out companies or they buy large stakes in companies so that they can manage the company, you know, the way that they want to. And, you know, we talked a little bit about that, about board of directors and, uh, you know, those, uh, those kind of things. So, you know, I think it's important to understand there are professional money managers in this. There are, um, you know, there are robo advisors, there are mutual funds, 
And I think the other one that, you know, we haven't talked about a, a lot, but it, it is very important is called index funds. And so those are essentially, they have to, uh, you know, attach themselves to a specific index. So the S&P 500, the Dow Jones. Um, and so they buy and sell based on very specific criteria of how those uh, indexes are weighted. And they fall in, into that institutional group. Um, and, you know, so one of the biggest institutional investors is called BlackRock. Um, and they're yeah. investing money. I mean, they have like some crazy yeah. tr trillions of trillions. dollars. Trillions. Uh, management's like in the trillions. Yeah. And that, that's that, insane. That, and, you know, they collect like 2% of all of the assets under management. And so even though they're mass managing trillions of dollars, the amount of money that they make is based off of the assets under management. It's not on a percentage of how well they do or any of that uh, kind of thing. As far as, I, I mean, they may have some funds in there that, that yeah. operate that way. Yeah. Um, so I think it's important, you know, as just an aside, when we talk about these these different players, the private equity firms, the hedge funds, the mutual funds and all this, they have this air about them of telling you that we're a professional money manager. You're incapable of doing, you know, managing this yourself. You know, you're too busy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Give us the money so that we can manage it for you. And, you know, when you start, you know, going down that and you then look at their incentive structure, right? If they, if they were really good at what they did, you know, what they would say is I will only make, money when you make money and I will take a percentage of the profits that I generate for you and no fees under when I you know do assets under management and if they did that most of them would be bankrupt right now and that's why they use assets under management because they are incentivized very differently from the way you would be incentivized if you were managing your own money right and I think that's a very very important concept because if their goal is to get make money which is every business's goal in the history of you know the planet then they're they're going to spend all of their effort growing their assets under management regardless of how they get there you know and, and the easiest way for the for them to do that is to go and get new investors to put money into their fund right and so when you talk to these you know or when you see these people uh, you know you can look at their actual performance over time, you know, 99% of them, uh, you know, over a 10 year period, you know, trail the index, you know, so you're, you know, as, as an investor, if you choose not to manage your own money, the best place to park your money is in an index fund, right? Because these guys don't transact, you know, like the hedge funds and, and all that. And they're not focused on assets under management. They're focused on you know, our task is basically just follow the index, right. you know, and the index is proven to, you know, beat the, you know, that is the market. Most people can't beat it. Yeah. I uh, just want to quickly recap what we talked about there. So right off the bat, you talked about how everybody who are, every, everyone who is playing in this market, in this place and who owns shares of the company, they can be, they are labeled as investors, but they really are owners as well. Yeah, as as holders of the of the of the shares of a publicly right. traded company. So you, you talked about that, and then from there we talked about institutional investors and different incentive alignments and different players within institutional invest institutional money, the professional money money managing class, and then you have the kind of the, the capital allocating kind of the 
you know, just they're sitting on a pile of cash. They need to deploy it in all, all these different places, such as Rice University Endowment. You know, they have the close to $6 billion. And this is something that I found. Sovereign welfare funds. You know, sovereign wealth funds. Uh, Norway has them. America has them. China has them. Every major country has them. Yep. Norway, for example, they have $1 trillion in endowment. So they need to allocate it in different places to ensure the sovereignty of the nation as they move forward. And so they will distribute money. So let's say Norway, Sovereign Wealth Fund, will distribute money to professional money managers in Wall Street, yep. such as Fidelity or whoever it may be. They'll distribute it to, to them and say, hey, please manage 30% of our money. And they'll give that to them. Yep. And they'll go out to the public marketplace and buy a whole, a whole bunch of stuff. And so th- that also creates um, kind of investor uh, money managing kind of relationship because they have now, they now have you know investors to report to, right? And so there's a lot of inst- you know, structural incentive um, alignment there, as well as the fee structures that you talked about. The 22 uh, fees of a lot of hedge funds and mutual funds, yeah, and how that's you know not cannot how that sometimes may not be most conducive to profit making. Yeah, I think that that concept is very important because it. You know, in almost every industry, right, the professional is somebody who is trained to do certain things, you know, um, and they their incentives are usually aligned with yours, right? Your, you know, physician, you know, is not, uh, you know, it, it is incentivized to make you well because otherwise they, you know, you know, first of all, most physicians aren't scumbags and they don't, you know, want you to get sick. Right. It's not like, uh, you know, you know, everybody says, well, they just make me sicker so that they can have a lifelong patient. That's not how it you know typically works. Right. But you go to a professional, you go to a lawyer when you have legal trouble, you go to that. It is natural for us to think that if somebody is a professional in their area, they perform a service for us um, that, you know, you know, better than somebody who's an amateur. The stock market is not is not that way because a lot of the times when you put too much money into one place, it becomes very difficult for them to deploy capital meaningfully, right? And so what happens is the larger you get, it you get this diseconomy of scale, which means that you can't deploy your money effectively, so you have to buy things that you wouldn't otherwise buy. Mm-hmm. And effectively what happens is they, 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 they make less money for you because they have more money. So that concept is really important to understand is they have structural problems that limit how they can, you know, perform. And so and as they get bigger, they have fewer and fewer places. You know, if I had a 10 billion dollar company or, you know, mutual fund, I and I can only invest in um, up, you know, a maximum of 10 percent in any individual company, you know, is is one of their the the rules. Then that means that I, I have to invest you know, $10 billion or a billion dollars at most in one individual company. Well, if I can only find three good companies, <clears throat> then I'm not going to, you know, as a mutual fund, they typically fully invest every dollar that they have. Um, and so th- what, what it does is it, it incentivizes them because if they don't do well, then you pull your money out of that mutual fund, put it somewhere else. Right. So it, it kind of enforces this short term kind of thinking and it enforces this idea that I have to do well every quarter. And if you start thinking about this from a longer term perspective and think about it from I'm an investor, I'm willing to, you know, endure 
you know, some ugliness for six months, a year, two years, even three years, because the light at the end of the tunnel is a significant rate of return for me. That mentality is is very different than what the institutional investor has, because yeah. they're beholden to the sovereign wealth funds, the to the, the other, endowment funds, other endowment funds to hit at, you know institutional yeah. investors, um, and so that creates a different incentive structure, right? And so, you know, we'll, we're going to talk a lot about this in the next ep- you know, in the next uh, series of episodes, uh, you know, after we get through some financial statements and things like that. But I, I think it's it's very important to understand that institutional investors don't necessarily have your best interest in mind because they are terrified that you're going to move your money somewhere else. And when that happens, they have to sell, you know, shares. So they they are heavily focused on short term performance. And I think this illustrates something, too, that, you know, in the 50s, the entire market was basically retail investors. That's you and me, retail investors. And then what happened was they started selling mutual funds because they said, well, a professional can handle, handle your money better than you can. And as people moved that money away from um, retail to institutional, what ended up happening was it became more short-term thinking. You know, the average holding term for, you know, stocks in the 40s and 50s and 60s was in, you know, in measured in years. Now that's measured in months. Um because there's this short-term and you know mentality institutional investors are you know they have you know various metrics but some one of those is the turnover of how many shares do they uh you know uh, do and sometimes they're turning over their portfolio three and four times so that means that you know the holding period for some of these stocks is two or three months yeah maybe maybe can, can you touch on um the famous thing about like IBM, if you were to buy IBM, you'd never get fired. I think that's also important to mention. Yeah. In addition to the structural limitations. Right. Intra-company dynamic. Yeah. Can you talk about that. Yeah. So, you know, the <clears throat> there's this uh, concept that's called the institutional imperative, right? And, you know, one of the things that they say is no one ever got fired for buying IBM, right? And that actually applied, you know, if you were a customer of IBM, but it also applied to the stock market. So in... You know, the 60s and 70s, there was this list of companies called the Nifty 50. And the Nifty 50 basically was a list of companies that you as an investor should buy at any price because they have an unlimited growth runway, right? And that's that was kind of the concept was it doesn't matter what price you pay because they're great businesses. And so a lot of people just said, well, we're buying the Nifty 50, and, you know, that was how the institutional funds worked was these are le- very large companies. They're not going to go bad. They're not going to, you know, a- any of that stuff. Um, and so a lot of those companies that were on that list were companies that all of these institutional investors held. And so what you would see is a lot of, um, you know, very little difference between these different institutional funds because they were all basically buying the same thing largely because everybody else was buying that. Because if you didn't buy IBM and you yeah. bought the, and then you did poorly, you can just say, then you would be fired because you were, you, you know, people would yeah. say, why did you, you know, pick that? But if you bought what everyone else bought and it went down, you can say, well, that's just the, the market. market yeah. yeah. And so, you know, that kind of <laughs> ridiculousness, you know, in thinking is, it's a, it's a purely psychological, you know, effect. And it affects everybody. It, you know, their people are not making decisions based on rational behavior. 
as we've mentioned so many times in this podcast up to date, up to this date, look at their incentives, right? And if their incentive is, I'm making a crap load of money managing this, you know, this fund, and all I have to do is go and listen to what everybody else is buying and buy that, and I won't get fired, and I'll make millions of dollars a year managing this fund, well, hell yeah, I'm going to do that, right? Of course, yeah. And that concept is why, you know, like, um, one of the the best books on on understanding that institutional imperative is Peter Lynch wrote a book. Um, he he actually wrote two book, uh, one up on Wall Street and uh, Beat the Street. Uh, and those two books actually he kind of he was a ran the Fidelity Magellan Fund uh, in the seventies and you know through nineteen ninety. So for that thirteen year period, he absolutely you know beat the crap out of the market. Um, and he just kind of illustrated like, you know, look, I, I didn't listen to what anybody else did. I didn't, you know, buy the, you know, I, I think the nifty 50 as a concept had kind of faded away by then. But, you know, he basically bought what was uh, what was good businesses that were, you know, considered growth stocks at the time. But he paid a, you know, he, he paid very much attention to the value of them as well. And, you know, he, he beat the market by doing that. And he really illustrates how a lot of the colleagues that he had in the mutual fund industry did not adhere to those principles. And, you know, they just bought what everybody else bought. And that mentality led to very poor returns. Right. So you talk about Nifty 50, you talk about IBM. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think it's also important to point out that this is happening right now today. Yeah. Right. So you have FANG stocks talk, being talked about. You, talk, you have Tesla being thrown out there. Everyone, yeah. everyone owns a fang, owns a, owns fang stock now. Yeah, yeah. The, so it's happening right now. It's not a, it's not a thing of the past. No, and and that, you know, w typically that happens when there's a strong bull market, and people push up the prices of you know certain stocks very high, and they far exceed their underlying intrinsic value, and that's not to say that these fang stocks aren't good companies, but you wouldn't pay an unlimited price for anything, right? I, you know. Toyota Corolla makes a good car, right? It makes a very good car, but I wouldn't pay $300,000 for a Toyota Corolla, right? So, you know, Amazon is a good company, but I wouldn't pay a million dollars per share for that, you know, that's that stock because, you know, then that, that company would be worth like more than the entire capital in the world, right? So, you know, this concept has to be there has to be an anchor to every decision, right? That is what is the essence of value investing is, is I'm anchoring to a, a, a very specific uh, target, which is a price. And if I'm well below that, you know, that margin of safety below that price, then I'll buy it. Mm -hmm. And when you see these, the FANG stocks, the, um, the Nifty 50, that institutional mindset of pr promote these individual stocks because they have unlimited runway and all that stuff, it works and it may work for two, three, four years, but what will end up happening is when, you know, you know, the piper, you know, somebody has to pay the piper at some point. And that's when the, the, the value of those companies gets wiped out uh, very quickly. Yeah. So those are really important points when, when you and I are approaching the marketplace as individual, in, individual uh, value investors. Yeah. Really, really important to... To know, let's just let me just let me quickly just kind of summarize really quick. Yeah. Kind of the high level high level uh, perspective. Inside investors, we broke it down into two: retail investors versus institutional investors. Within institutional investors, we talked about 
different incentive structures involved. Yep. Right. You talked about, we talked about Nifty 50, the FANG stocks. When people are managing millions of dollars and they're making millions of millions of dollars in salary, they don't have to go out of their way. They can just follow the crowd. Right. And that that is the, the peril of institutional investing. And we need to be really mindful of that. And uh, we talked about different types of money managers, the hedge funds, the mutual funds, and then the index fund and the rise of ETFs. We talked about those. And then aside from that, the other part of the investors uh, group, retail investors like you and I, yep. and the kind of mindset we need to have to tackle this marketplace. And the false notion that the professional money managing class knows they're omnipotent, they can grow your wealth, you know, double your money, triple your, triple your money. That false notion has to be, has to be, has to be um, corrected. Yeah. And uh, as investors, as value investors, retail investors, we need to be really mindful of those kind of institutional perils and institutional um, interest alignments. Yep. They're not aligned with ours. Okay. Let's move on to the next one. Uh, investment banks. So, you know, we, we talked about them a little bit with IPOs. You know, they underwrite the shares of companies and they, they, they may have clients that they, you know, you know, make recommendations to buy and sell stock. Um, you know, so, you know, they, they can account for a, a significant amount of volume because they, they move in and out of shares and uh, make recommendations and they, they employ, comp you know, people who are, you know, professional traders, right? And so they, they see what they perceive as uh, imbalances or, you know, you know, and they make these things called hedge, you know, hedge trades where, you know, they buy one thing in some area and sell something in another area. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so for the most part, as a day-to-day -day person, as a retail investor, as a value investor, they don't really have a whole lot to teach you, you know, as far as uh, what to buy or sell, right? I mean, that, as we've talked about before, it's about the fundamental analysis of the company and what does the business do? And understanding the business dictates whether or not this is a good investment. Right. And so, you know, I don't have a whole lot to add to that. I mean, I, I yeah. think, uh, you know, uh, other than, you know, what we've already kind of talked about. Yeah. I actually do want to add analyst. Yeah. Kind of falls into investment banks and how their interest. Right. In, you know, analysts, analysts are pretty important in the stock market or not, you know, they are, they play a significant part in it. You know, they get on the, the conference calls and ask all these questions. They have ratings. And depending on the ratings, stock price moves up and down quite a bit. So t tell us about that and how their incentive structures as an employee of investment banks might not be aligned with yours as outside investors. Yeah, and, and you know, they're not typically, they're not isolated just to investment banks. They may actually be in brokerage firms sure. too. But uh, just to, you know, to kind of talk to that, you know, an analyst is, it's very interesting to see what kind of recommendations they make because largely almost every recommendation that they make is not very negative, right? For the most part, they're saying buy, sell, you know, oh. buy, uh, strong buy and hold. And, you know, very rarely do they, they issue sell ratings, partly because they don't want to issue that because they don't want to piss off companies. Because if they, if they make a, um, uh, a sell rating or they, you know, aren't, promoting a company, then that company may not do business with them uh, as an analyst. Uh, you know, and so the analysts use this as kind of a the tip of the spear to kind of get, you know, uh, business through the door. And so their incentives are not very much aligned with, 
you know, telling you the truth or saying anything. And when you listen to the analysts on some of their calls, you know, they, they try and do the, you know, financial modeling and, and all of this stuff. And to be honest with you, it's, you know, they try and get very precise on something that is not accurate, right? You just can't be very accurate with, you know, predicting the future, right? I mean, that if they did, then, you know, weathermen would be the greatest, you know, uh, you know, the stock market, you know, predictors of all time. It, it's just the future is uncertain. And so part of this is just understanding what you're doing is not trying to be precise necessarily because you can be uh and and, and you know th- that's kind of what analysts are saying is they're going to say next year the company is going to earn this and then the year after it's going to earn that i mean they're wrong far more often you know than they're right and you know so trying to put a precise number on this and all that stuff you're never going to get close yeah you know so you know w- analysts typically you know are doing this largely to be you know, I'm following a stock and then, you know, they're, they have their own clients that they're, you know, and they may do things that's a little bit shady where they tell people, Hey, I'm going to make a, put a sell rating on this company, sell now before I do it. And then you can make money, you know, that way. And so, you know, they're, they're adhering to a different structure and a different, you know, they're where their money is aligned. Right. And so following the, the incentives tells you, you know, they're not, a good place to look for recommendations. Yeah. And I think that last point, not a good place to look for recommendation. In fact, as beginners, we tend to gravitate towards these earnings yeah. report or these uh, analyst reports out there because right. they're relevant. Or not, not relevant, but they're prevalent. And you can just pick them up and see, oh, oh Tesla is a buy. I'm going to go buy Tesla. Or yeah. Microsoft is a buy. I'm going to go buy Microsoft. Yeah. And so it's ver- you got to be very wary of, of their incentives and how they how they fit in this in this marketplace. Yeah, and just to give you a real quick example, uh in 2000 Cisco was uh you know, trading at like $170 or some it was very large, you know, uh multiple to what they, you know, their cash flow and things like that. And um you know, when the dot com bubble burst, right before that, I I want to say hundred plus analysts had a strong buy or buy on the Cisco stock and the stock lost, you know, 80% of its value in, you know, in a three month period. And, you know, I mean, if you followed the analysts, you would, you know, their incentive is not to tell you what's going to happen correctly. Right. I mean, they're strong buy, strong buy. We want Cisco's business strong buy, strong buy. That doesn't help you, right? Uh, you know, to so, you know, just looking at this, I, 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 you know, you can find a lot of examples where they're just flat out wrong, and they tell you to do stuff that has no thing. So, I would always say, anything that you do, you're going to have to do the work yourself, and if you do that, you will benefit, um, you know, and learn, you know, from your your experience. So, don't follow what other people say. Just, you know, do the work yourself. Yeah. Okay, and let's move on to the fourth player in this marketplace, uh, broker. I mean, we we talked about that in the last episode. You want to have anything to add there? Uh, not really. I think you know. Look, look at the last you know uh, uh, talk. I mean, they they kind of do some stuff to help manipulate the market, uh, not manipulate, but support the market in terms of making sure there's enough liquidity, which is trading volume, to make sure there's bids and asks. Uh, uh, and so they they participate uh, in that. Uh, cause obviously they're placing transactions for you. They may bulk, you know, 
order transactions just to reduce their costs and things like that too. So, you know, they, they participate in, in that, uh, in that way. Yeah. Okay. And then lastly, let's talk about the exchange, New York stock exchange, um, NASDAQ. Those are two iconic American exchanges, uh, here in, in the U S. Um, what do they do? Ari? So they actually provide the listing service so that you can, you know, they, they're, basically the place where people come together all these you know providers come together um to buy and sell um they support the companies uh in in listing their services and you know they actually also provide some level of uh requirements in order to be on their exchange you know you have to have you know have so much uh trading volume you have to have so much in in terms of um and so the you know they're they're a necessary part of the the place because if you want to buy a stock you have to go through an exchange and the exchange is where these various market makers you know who are people who actually uh, ensure that there's enough liquidity for you know for trading during during hours uh, and incidentally that's also why after hours you'll see very big changes in the price is that these market makers aren't there to make sure that the you know trade transactions are regular and you know and safe yeah you know so there isn't big changes in your uh, in the stock, uh, swing in the price. Right. Um, I guess. Yeah. So that, that was exchange. I, I just thought of something, you know, th- one thing that we could add to this to this list is probably regulators. Yeah. They, I, they kind of play a back backstage role, but they do play, play a role in this marketplace. Sure. You know, they're, they're, they are part of that, um, process, but they don't necessarily exchange, you know, you know, participate in buying and selling. Right. But the SEC and you know other uh, regulatory bodies do have a, they they kind of set the rules for how the trading can occur, so right. it's regular and regulated. Yeah. You know, so when I go through this, I just want to kind of tell people what I think about it, uh, this whole situ- this whole the, the marketplace. So I try to start a small side gig. You know, I try to sell stuff online um, a year ago, two years ago, and. Uh, going through that process, you know, you realize how hard it is to actually start something up and make it profitable and sustainable for long term. It's yep. a lot of work. And okay. and obviously I did it myself, so I could have shared some of the burdens, but you realize, oh man, like actually like erecting a business and running it is a lot of work. And if you look at this, you got the company investor, investment bank, the analyst, brokers, exchange, the regulators it's amazing how everything is set up for you. Yeah. Like all you have to do is open up the brokerage account and really just put some money in and you can ride the wave of American growth or any growth for that matter. You can just ride this wave and everything is set up for you. Whereas if you were to start your own business, think how hard it is to get it from, you know, funding, putting the team together, et cetera, et cetera, growing. It's a lot of work. Yeah. Whereas this, I mean, this is really, I mean, just step back and think about this. Like this is really fantastic. Like, it's just, just step, you know, stepping back and thinking about it, this is like wild to me, like that anyone can access the market and really just the tailwind of, you know, Warren Buffett talks about this all the time, right? That tailwind of American business, the force that it brings, you can just ride that wave. Yeah. And you can own a piece of these businesses, as many or as few businesses as you want. And you benefit when they benefit. And I mean, to me, I think it's very you know, as an American, I think it's very patriotic to actually, because you're participating in 
you know, America and supporting that, you know, the economic growth and, you know, and you're, you're benefiting from, you know, that growth uh, as well. So, you know, you have the option of doing that by buying into the, the market or staying away from it. Right. And it's at your own detriment, I would, I would argue, uh, to stay away. You know, you're going to lose if you don't. Yeah, it is. It is amazing. Uh, it is amazing that there's all this infrastructure already in place for you to just play in. I mean, that's pretty astounding to yep. me. Okay. Um, let's, let's look at the next topic, which is different ways to invest in the marketplace. Yeah. A lot of times you'll hear, oh, we are long only, or we're short only, or we're hybrid. We do both short and long. What are those terms? Let's define them. So what is long platform? So long is basically you're buying... So they say, you know, you go long on a stock or you, you're a long, long only stockholder or, you know, that kind of thing is essentially meaning that you're buying the securities to own. Um, it doesn't mean necessarily that you're, it used to mean that you're holding it for a long period of time, but hence the term long, but it, it, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're essentially just saying I'm buying it with the intent that the stock price will go up and then I will sell it, you know, the buy low, sell high kind of uh, mentality. And the the flip side is short. Mm -hmm. So selling something short is essentially just basically I'm borrowing shares from, you know, somebody else via my broker, selling those shares in the market and then hoping that the stock price will go down. And then I buy back those shares and then give that uh, those shares back to the original borrower. So that that transaction is a little bit complicated. Can you reiterate that one yeah. more time? Yeah. So. Uh, you know, the short selling is essentially just borrowing shares from somebody in your brokerage house, right? When you borrow those shares, you sell them in the open market and then expecting that the price will go down. And then when the price, if the price does go down or doesn't go down, you buy back those shares at some point and then return the shares back to the uh, original, you know, it'll go back to the broker, the broker will put them now, in my brokerage account, it doesn't tell me that, you know, it still says that I own those shares, right? So when I'm borrowing, they're not actually borrowing from me as an individual necessarily. They're borrowing it from the broker's pool of the shares that are owned. And so when those shares are shorted uh, and, and sold, you know, you still have it in your account. And if you had to sell them, you can. It's not like, you, you know, because they're borrowed from you that you can't, you know, like a physical item. Uh, so, you know, but when you go short, you're essentially hoping that the price of a stock will go down. Now, from as an aside to all of this, there, there are some value investors who buy long and sell short, you know, and, and kind of do this hedge fund. You know, one of those is David Einhorn. You know, in my mind, if you're buying something to hold, there's an potentially an unlimited upside, right? That the stock could just keep going up. If you're selling something short, your only benefit is, you know, only hope is that it goes down and it can only go down. You have a limited upside of a hundred percent return, right? Which is the price of the stock to going to zero, uh, and then getting all of that money back. So to me, selling something short, you know, first of all, I'm just, I'm not, I don't think that way. I can see that companies aren't doing well. Um, you know, but I, I don't like piling in on the, you know, on that, on that. Cause Sometimes the, you know, as people who have invested and short sell Tesla have found, even though the company doesn't make money and things like that, the stock price may go up. Irrationality may, uh, 
uh, far exceed your ability to be solvent. And, you know, in that in that case. And so uh, when you see those kind of things, you know, it, it you know, so being being wary of that. But short selling does add uh, it provides liquidity in the market when people are trying to sell that there isn't enough sellers. They're actually borrowing shares and selling allows there some, you know, transaction volume to exist. So it does make it uh, and, it, it, you know, to be honest with you, some I like short sellers because if they sell something short, they may lower the price for me to buy at a you know a lower price. Mm-hmm. So, um, so you know that that's you know part of this market, and a lot of the institutional investors and uh, all this have you know have this uh, in their bag as a as tools they can buy and buy long and sell short. Yeah. So that was long and short, different ways to play in the market. There's also another way. Um, you know, not not a lot of value investors actually do this which we're just we're going to talk about here in a bit but some do some actually do play in this and that's options so there are two different types of options put and puts and calls but let's just tell us what options is overall and then and tell us two different uh, types yeah so I, I think this is something that you know we can talk a lot more about we'll just kind of mention it here um and then we'll talk about the implications later um so options are really it's an it's a contract that you go into with another individual and the two types there's a call option and put option the call option is essentially the right but not the obligation to buy a stock before a certain date which is called the expiration date if it goes above a certain price so in essence uh if i have a call option to buy a stock at $15 and it's currently trading at $10 that option will go will expire if it before the expiration date if it doesn't ever hit $15 i don't make any money right so um you know i or i can't i can't buy the the, the stock price at $15 you can't execute the trade i can't yeah execute the the option the flip side to that is puts which is it gives the owner the right but not the obligation to sell at a specified price, which is also called the stock price, the, the strike price, excuse me, uh, before the exercise date. And so it's, in essence, you're betting that the, you know, stock is going to go down. And if it does, then you can, you want to kind of limit your losses or uh, you, you may actually benefit financially uh, from that uh, at, you know, by, you know, protecting yourself. So there, these two things uh, just, you know, these are, Additional things that occur on top of uh, the stock, uh, you know, typical stock market volume of buying and holding. So it's not just I have to buy shares. I have to buy, I can buy contracts that allow me to do certain things with those shares. So what what does this all mean? You know, in that there's, these are just some of the components of the market itself. And these are just kind of introductory topics. Um, We can go into further detail about this, but I, I mean, I think we're you know, kind of, there's a lot to digest in this episode. So I, I would say, you know, we'll, we'll save that for a later date. Yeah, that sounds good. So let's just do a quick recap of the episode. Um, this was the stock market players. Who is out there in the marketplace? Um, company, obviously, investors, different types of investors. We talked about institutional capital as, as well as retail money. And investment banks slash analysts and uh, and then we talked about brokers and exchange, as well as well, we touched on last the last point, which is regulators. We added that the last bit there. Yep. And then, 
and the different ways to play in the marketplace, long and short. And then we also talked about the options as a way to play in the marketplace. So that is it, you guys. Stock market players. It was interesting and exciting to talk about it. Um, so I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, please leave us comments uh, in the comment section and subscribe to our channel. Be it on YouTube. I know a lot of you guys are listening to us on the podcast. So please tell your friends that this podcast is awesome. All right. I'll see you guys on the next episode. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks.